The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. The will acts as a kind of microcosm of Henry VIII's life. Everything he's tried to do in his life is to ensure the succession, to ensure the future of the dynasty, to put Edward on that throne, and his will, very similarly, is dedicated to that. That was Susanna Lipscomb discussing the will of Henry VIII in an interview with fellow historian Dan Jones. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of February 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For this week's podcast, we're repeating a format we've tried a few times in the past, where one historian interviews another about their work. This time around, the focus is on King Henry VIII and his will, a document that had great significance for the rest of the 16th century, and one that has been mired in historical controversy. Dr Susanna Lipscomb, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the New College of the Humanities, has written a book on the will entitled The King is Dead. And putting the questions to her was medieval historian and author Dan Jones. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Susanna Lipscomb, that's a quotation from Shakespeare's Richard II, but it's also the quote that you take as an epigraph at the beginning of your book. 
The King is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of Henry VIII, which is a beautiful book, wonderfully written, impressive marriage of scholarship and narrative, and at times it reads like a detective story. And it is, as you hint, a sad story about the death of a king, King Henry VIII, arguably the most famous monarch in British history. Why did you decide to write about Henry's death? Henry VIII's death is really interesting because, of course, it has been so contested. Um, like most of Henry VIII's life, one of the brilliant things about the Tudor period is that the historiography, what different historians have to say, is so binary, the really uh, black and white positions. And Henry VIII's death in the last year of his life is used as one example of a conspiracy theory in action. So that the factions at Henry's court were operating to change the contents of Henry's will and to change the situation um, on his death when his son Edward would become king but would be a minor and so would need people to help rule for him. And so the whole story is, is a really fascinating one that tells us something about Henry's character, which I think we can't get from elsewhere. And when I started looking at it, I was really trying to approach it afresh because I'd written before about the fall of Anne Boleyn and I'd thought about faction at Henry's court, but I wanted to try and think about it uh, anew and not take into, that, take, take into it what I'd learnt before so much that I, it distorted my reading of the evidence. I wanted to say, well, you know, it may be that in the last year of Henry's life he's so enfeebled that people can make him go where he doesn't want to go and do what he doesn't want to do, and that is what happens with the will. But as time went on, I, I, I came to decide on the basis of the evidence that that wasn't what I thought. So Henry VIII died uh, on the 28th of January, 1547, about two o'clock in the morning. Give us just a picture of what Henry was like at this final stage of his life. How old was he? What sort of shape was he in? Was he, you know, everything he was ill? But tell us a little about him. He was 55 years old. Um, he was obese. We know that seven years earlier he had a waist measurement of 54 inches. Presumably this was even bigger by the time he died. How um, do we know that? We, from his armour, we can tell from his armour. That the suit was at the Tower of London. Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, there's also one at the Met in New York. Um, and so we know he was very big. Uh, he, we also know um, that he was disabled, essentially. He had this um, ulcer that had been opened up in his leg by his fall in 1536 that hadn't healed. In 1540, um, there's a, an occasion where he goes black in the face and they say they think he might die. It's something like a blood clot, essentially. It's, and it's possible that in the end he dies from a pulmonary embolism that this is responsible for. So this is bound up, it's stinking, it's pus-filled, it's dripping, it's, it's, it's not very nice. And he gets um, moved around his palaces by this point in chairs, in sort of wheeled chairs made for the occasion. Um, and also pulled up and downstairs by a kind of pulley system. Uh, yes, so you, you said in your book, I think, that it's the Tudor equivalent of a wheelchair and uh, a stair lift. Um, physically, how does a Tudor stair lift work? I, I haven't got a, a brilliant description of the stair lift exactly. I mean, I sort but they, of they had They had stairs and they had... I mean, I suppose this is something people, if they think about the Tudor period, would, would assume this wasn't part of normal life. Well, the, the, the account that we have of this is from Elizabeth Holland, who's the Duke of Norfolk's mistress, that the king could not go up and down the stairs, but was let up and down by a device. A device? A device. So I sort of imagine like one of those pulley systems with a basket, but instead you've got Henry VIII in it. Wow. I think that's, that's the best image of Henry VIII I've ever had, you know, for all of the sort of um, the fawning and the great images of him as a prince that we have from the imperial ambassador and, and whoever at the start of his reign. Uh, the idea of him, um, like in one of those adverts at the back of the Telegraph magazine, you know, going up and down the stairs. I, I, personally, I like that. Anyway, the picture I think we're getting of Henry VIII at the end of his life is he's very fat, he's very ill, he's very obese. I mean, is it possible uh, for us to diagnose with any kind of modern medical certainty what was going on, or are we just sort of speculating about his illnesses? I mean, it is so hard to make these diagnoses over the centuries, isn't it? It is, and the evidence that we have from his doctors isn't really good enough to do so. Uh, it helps us rule out a few things. 
I generally get asked whether Henry had syphilis, um, and it seems unlikely that he did uh, because syphilitic ulcers are self-healing and because they had a treatment for syphilis, which was not terribly helpful, but was to get people to inhale mercury or, or put it on the um, affected parts of their body in various forms of um, creams. Um, I think we know what we're talking about when we're talking about the affected parts of the body. I, I wouldn't do that. Um, uh, anyway, so it was obviously very bad for people, and there was no evidence of that. But we do. It does seem that he was. We just have these occasions where he's, you know, black in the face, or where he's having problems with the the pus field leg. And so um, it seems that maybe he had dropsy. There are various things that people have diagnosed. Lots of historian, medical medical historians have looked at it. But okay, so he's in a bad way. He's in a in a very bad way, and it's the end of of fifteen forty six. Now most of us. Uh, if we do plan for death, we plan for death by making a will, right? Um, but if you or I were making our will, uh, we might, I suppose, or I, I'm thinking for myself here, be leaving kind of accumulated bits and pieces of kind of tap, we've, or even, you know, or money, whatever, that we've accumulated over our, our sort of small and insignificant lives, and we'll be leaving that to our loved ones, right? But, um, you know, a thousand pounds to the kids, or um, a million pounds to the cats, which, you know, some, some people do this. Henry VIII was a king. He wasn't like you or I, and King's wills, one assumes, are not like the wills of people where you're just leaving trinkets. What was Henry VIII's will like, and what is, or rather, what is a King's will like, and what's it all about? A King's will, generally speaking, is about apportioning estates. This is absolutely what Henry VI had done. I'm teaching you to suck eggs here, but uh, Edward IV, this is what their, their wills had been about, saying where their estates should go. And there's very little attention given in them to the subject that takes up most of Henry's will. So Henry, basically, in terms of stuff, he really leaves it all to Edward. Um, uh, pretty much everything. And if, we, if you look at the inventories on Henry's death, that is a lot of stuff. Um, and some of, the, some of this is in your book, actually, isn't it? You've, you've, you've um, extracted parts from Henry's inventory. So we are talking about the the trinkets and the tap and the carpets and the tapestries and the whatnot. I exactly, assume. all of that. And, um, you know, e even the, the crown is mentioned in the inventory and pictures and tapestries and um, bedspreads and everything. Um, so all of that is left to Edward, um, with the exception of some money being left to Mary and Elizabeth, £3,000 um, uh, a year to live on um, and, a, and a portion of money when they marry. Um, some money being left to, a very small amount of money being left to his wife, Catherine Parr, um, and such as she wants of her, uh, her clothes that she already possesses. And then small amounts of money paid to members of his court, and particularly his servants and his doctors. But this is sort of a list at the end, and it isn't the real purpose of Henry VIII's will. 60% of Henry's will is dedicated to outlining plans for the succession. Now, you mentioned uh, Edward, Elizabeth... Mary, Catherine Parr. Can you just, um, in case anyone is, is unclear about Henry's sort of uh, domestic situation, for want of a better term, at the end of his life, he's married to Catherine Parr. His son, Edward, is how old? His son, Edward, was born in 1537, so he's, he's just about nine years old at this point in time. Um, and so... And he has two daughters. And he has two daughters who are significantly older, um, or at least Mary is, um, she's in her 20s, and Mary is his daughter by Catherine of Aragon, Elizabeth, of course, his daughter by Anne Boleyn, both of whom have been made, made illegitimate, and crucially, in the acts of succession, um, were first in 1536 taken out of the line of succession and made illegitimate, and then in the act of 1544 put back in the line of succession but not legitimised, which causes problems later in the 16th century. But that's all okay, Henry thinks, because he's got his legitimate son who's going to take the throne when he dies. Okay, so we've established that Henry VIII had a lot of stuff when he died, and it was pretty clear that the majority of that was going to be left to his son, Edward, who was going to become king uh, after he died. Now, uh, I sense you're hinting that Henry VIII's will is taken up with what you know we can concisely call succession planning. I can think of one king before Henry who had done something similar with his will, and that's Henry V when he realised he was dying and leaving literally a, a baby, not even one year old, Henry VI, um, as king, had added codicils to his will, attempting to set out what would happen to the child after his death. 
Henry VIII's will really takes that idea and runs with it, doesn't it? It does, yes. So as well as laying out eight succession scenarios, then he does actually also spend time making a plan for how Edward's reign should be governed. And unlike plans for uh, Henry VI or for Richard III, um, Richard, sorry, Edward V and then Richard III um, rule, um, the plan is not to have a single regent, uh, a protector, an uncle, a maternal uncle who um, might take power. Although, if you know your history of the 16th century, that is, of course, what happens. Henry's plan is to go back further to the examples of 1377, 1327, and to draw on a plan to have a council who will rule. OK, before we get stuck, I, I mean, I want to get stuck into the politics both of the making of the will and, um, and of Henry's conceived future for the governance and the succession. Before we do that, I wonder if you can just say a few words about the document itself. When we're talking about Henry VIII's will, what does it look like? Where is it? How long is it? Uh, can anyone listening to this podcast you know, see it? I know they can read it as an appendix to your book, your excellent transcription, sort of modernisation of the language. Tell us something about the document. So the document is at the National Archives, which means that anyone can go and see it. And in it's fact, in the National Archives in the UK in Q. In Q, yes, that's right. And in fact, you can actually also um, download uh, it. It's been digitised. Uh, it's been digitised. They've taken photographs of it, and it's a beautiful thing. It's twenty-eight folios. It's parchment. It's written in this beautiful, um, gorgeous secretary hand by Sir William Paget, and it um, it has Henry's signature, uh, or at least. It, We'll come to that um, at the beginning and end, and ten witnesses also sign it. You um, say twenty-eight folios. That's that long. Yes, it's it long is long. Document. It is long. Document. It's about five, six thousand words. It's longer than Magna Carta, for example. So, it, I mean, in terms of yeah. if we're thinking about big historical documents, this is a seriously substantial piece of uh, seriously substantial document. That's right, and and it has it has very important provisions to make. Um, so it, it, at the beginning it sets out sort of with a spiritual preface saying, you know, Henry's beliefs, plans for his funeral, um, money to be left to be given to the poor and to people to pray for his soul. So it sets out with very conventional things, plans for his tomb, which incidentally none of his children quite got round to finishing. He was sort of borrowing what, what remained of Wolsey's plans for his tomb, and he, but his children didn't put the money into it. It's interesting, sorry, just as a, as mm. a sidebar there. Um, you mentioned, I mean, there is Henry VIII, you, you would expect for this sort of outsize king to have an outsize tomb, but actually he's just sort of buried under a, a kind of slab in, in Windsor, isn't he? He is, a black slab um, uh, with Jane Seymour and, uh, you know, and he's not, they're not the only two in there and, um, you know, people walk up and down across it all the time because it's in the aisle at St George's Chapel. No, but he planned a, a huge uh, monument um, that was going to really glorify him, that he would be on horseback and, you know, it would all be tr tremendously uh, impressive. And it didn't come about because his children didn't finance it. Which is strange because normally, I mean, previously kings would build their own tombs. And, it, and it's strange that apart from Henry VII, none of the uh, Tudor monarchs built their own tomb, did they? I mean, Elizabeth and Mary are both in that one made by James III. Anyway, That's right. we're, getting, we're getting off the topic here. Um, I wonder if you can just set the scene, because obviously this is a very political document. We've established a very long document. Um, we, we've, we have a picture of Henry Ill at the end of his reign. Um, tell us, give us a little background, if you would, about the big issues of the reign at this time. Um, what is animating people and what are the controversies of Henry's reign in the mid-50s? Well, I mean, one of the obviously the most controversial issue of Henry's reign in, in total is religion. Yeah. So Henry has broken from the Church of Rome by 1534, um, and uh, it's quite contested amongst historians exactly what happens after that point. But it's, it's certainly there are moves towards further reform. There's the dissolution of the monasteries. There are acts against um, pilgrimages and shrines. There's the Bible in English. But it, does, it doesn't go as far as the Reformation on the continent under, under Luther, for example. So some people are wanting further reform and there are others who want it to go further back into conservative, more Catholic practices. That is an issue and there are people dying for that. So there are um, sacramentarians, 
people who don't believe that the bread and wine becomes Christ's body and blood and who are willing to argue that to the death to the point of being burned for heresy in Henry VIII's England. So, it's so re- matters of faith are really hot topics at the time and determining action. And also, the, of course, there's war with France, sort of perennial theme. So there's been war in France back in the, in the 1540s. By the time Henry dies, they have made peace in this elaborate um, peace celebration in summer of 1546. But there's always the question of what will happen next if there is a, a young boy on the throne. And so those are the sort of key things, I suppose, that are going on at the time. Um, and whether one son is going to be enough for the succession. Okay, so then now let's talk about um, the, this murky area of how exactly the will was drawn up. Had Henry made a will before the point when he he became seriously ill and it, it seemed that he was going to die? Yes, he had. We know because in December 1546 he asked to see his will and wants to make changes to it, and there's some evidence to suggest that it might be actually the third iteration by that point rather than just the second. But do we have those? Not as far as I know. No, so that we they don't seem to survive. There was some talk about there being um, two in December 1546. Um, some historians have argued that the one at the Inner in Temple Library is actually another version, but because it says the 13th of December, but it's almost certainly just um, a scribe's mistake and it's the same, it's a copy of the 30th of December. So we only have the one. Okay, so... It's the end of the year, uh, 1546, Henry's very ill. Uh, he calls to see his, the, the, the previous will that he has made. He's going to update his will. Tell us what happens. So he calls to see it and he wants to make changes, he says. He wants to put out some people who were previously in it. And what, by, by that he means he wants to change the list of people who will be on the council, the Regency Council when Edward comes to the throne, i.e. the people who have de facto power to rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the names that we know he takes out is Stephen Gardner, Bishop of Winchester. A conservative. Right? He's a conservative in faith. Um, and uh, the other person he must have taken out um, is Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. because. Person. Another conservative, because Norfolk and his son, Surrey, have already, earlier in December, been arrested for treason. Um, There's also some stick about putting somebody in, who is probably um, uh, Thomas Seymour. But the key thing is that Gardner and Norfolk fall from the list. And with Gardner, what we're told is that the king... I mean, we have various different eyewitness accounts of this. Um, There's a record in the 1550s. And the king... um, clearly says something like Gardner is too willful to be around his son, that you cannot control, control him. He says that he could rule over him, but you shall never do so. Um, so he's saying to his other courtiers that Gardner you know, is bolshy. He gets his way. He wants certain things. And therefore, he is a dangerous person to put in the presence of a young, easily influenced boy. And so who does Henry, in his last will and testament, say that he does want around uh, his son, Edward, nine years old, at some point about to become... I mean, you don't have to give me a full list, but give me an idea of the people that Henry says he wants around young Edward. So he draws up a list of 16 councillors. So they are Henry's most senior um, and trusted men. They are those who, are, who have served him well by that point. And presumably... Uh, Given that Edward is from the Seymour family, we're going to have people who are connected to his mother's side. So we know that Thomas Seymour is going to be important in the next reign. Edward Seymour. Sorry, Edward Seymour. Yes, Thomas Seymour. But Thomas Seymour married Catherine Parr. Um, He did. He did go on to marry uh, Catherine Parr. So we've got um, people like Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, of course, who's been so important in pressing forward reform. Um, We've got sort of long-time supporters of Henry, long-time... Um, servants like John Lord Russell or William um, Powlett. Uh, We've got John Dudley, Viscount Lyle, and we've got, as you say, Edward Seymour, who is Henry's brother-in-law and uncle to the young boy who will become king. Now, without wanting to... uh, I I know this is a sort of live issue in, in terms of debate about Henry's will, so without wanting to cast forward too much, can we characterise, though, that group of people... 
um, as religious evangelicals, reformers, I don't want to use the word Protestant, but that, that, that kind of religious set, is Henry imagining that his son, who as historians we know will, will turn out to be quite a, um, uh, a reform-minded, evangelical-minded, Protestant-minded even king, is that something that Henry VIII is envisaging in late 1546? Many of the people I've named are people who are evangelical, i.e. proto-Protestant in their belief. But there are also others like Cuthbert Tunstall, the Bishop of Durham, or Thomas Risley, the Lord Chancellor, who are definitely not. They're definitely conservative in faith. And I don't think that's... So this is contested. Histori other historians disagree with me. I don't think that this is what is determining Henry's plans. I certainly don't think that he's casting forward to create an evangelical group who will rule over his son, because if we look at the rest of the will, it's very conservative. He asks the Virgin Mary. In fact, he demands the Virgin Mary to pray for his soul. You know, <laughs> only Henry VIII. Only Henry VIII. Tell the Virgin Mary what to do. And you know, he, in fact, that he leaves money for prayers for his soul is a very Catholic doctrine. You know, it, he he. He believes that he may be in purgatory. So there's no evidence that he would be making provision for a, a sort of swing to Protestantism after his death. I just don't think that he imagines what will happen, what does happen after his death. So could we characterise it by saying that he's just putting a bunch of competent people whom he trusts around his son? He trusts them utterly. He describes them as his right, entirely beloved, trusted servants, and he charges them you know, as they will answer at the day of judgment to do everything he asked them to do in his will. Right. So he, as it turns out, his trust is misplaced, but he, but he does trust them. Now, um, I, I sense we're going to wander into the, the realm of, um, of historical controversy uh, when I ask you the next question, but uh, the way you're describing the situation in December 1546, when Henry's very ill and he's making his will, he sounds like a very active player. Is it? Do you think he was directing events? He's, he's as ill as you've described. Could he possibly be directing events? And if, if, if so, why? If not, tell us why not. It is controversial. Um, he is ill often during the last year of his life, but every time he rallies, and he does seem to be involved in uh, political affairs up to a few days before he dies, uh, meeting ambassadors, making decisions about war, so I think he absolutely is competent at this last stage and, and directing events. Um, the counter-argument is that this decision to move Gardner um, and Norfolk from the will is one that has been a coup by people like Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, and um, by John Dudley, Viscount La, who are evangelicals, to influence the position after Henry's death. That has been the orthodoxy up until now, but I, by contrast, I'm saying I don't think that Henry is enfeebled to the point of doing it because the evidence seems to me to suggest that Henry is fully in charge of events. Okay, now, um, to borrow a phrase from Stephen Fry, I'm going to play devil's avocado and, uh, and say, to return briefly to the text of the will, a lot of people would argue, um, if they were going to argue for non-competence, let's say, by which I mean if they're going to argue that Henry was by now uh, defunct as a king, too ill really to have uh, a role in events, they would say the only thing you have to look at is the way that this will has been signed, quote-unquote, because the way that the will is signed, as you've said, at the beginning, at the end, uh, is not the way that you or I, maybe you, but certainly not I, would sign a document today, is it? Tell us about, uh, about the, the way that Henry's will is signed. It's signed by dry stamp, which is um, so a device that's been made to free Henry from the tedium of signing all these state documents all the time. So it creates an impression of his signature, and then three designated clerks ink in very carefully in the impression to create Henry's signature. But, dodgy as that may sound, and of course it allows utter possibilities for abuse because, by definition, Henry doesn't have to be present for it to be applied... Um, actually, it has been used for, since September 1545. So something like 1,600 state documents have had this applied to it, none of uh, the rest of which are in contestation as being legitimate, genuine legal documents from Henry's reign. Uh, so, but it becomes interesting in the case of the will because uh, it has been suggested by some historians that 
the will was tampered with after signature or that it wasn't signed at the time, um, signed in inverted commas at the time that uh, it said that it was signed, which is the 30th of December, 1546. What's interesting about it is that these clerks who do this have to be regularly pardoned for treason, for the treason of counterfeiting the king's signature. So there's a system, there's a system in place and the other backup is that all of these documents that are signed by a dry stamp have to be entered into a schedule of documents, a list of documents, so that it's clear, um, and then Henry endorses that, so it's clear what has had that treatment. So just to recap, um, Henry's will, like 1,600 other documents from the sort of last two years of his reign, it's physically like a, an ink stamp, except for no ink, it makes an impression on paper and then some poor guys with a quill have to colour it. Colour it in. He's incredibly lazy. What's wrong with the man? Well, he's, he's ill, as we've discussed. So, I'm um, ill. I've got a cold, as, as listeners can hear, but I, I signed a cheque this morning for my daughter's school. <laughs> I didn't know it was a dry stamp. That's why you won't be leaving a million pounds to the cat. That's um, true. Um, yes, but, you know, Henry has a lot of paperwork to do, and busy as your life might be, Dan, I... I, I think that the King of England probably had a little bit more to attend to. Um, and so in the light of slightly inflated illness over a cold, um, obviously, the, you know, and maybe just boredom. I mean, you know, the, chap, the guy's been doing this for 30 odd years and he's tired of doing it and he trusts his servants. And anyway, for whatever reason, he creates this, this stamp. OK, so he uses this dry stamp and this is how the will has been, has been uh, authenticated. It's been dry stamped, but you believe that that um, uh, that's that's perfectly fine and legitimate. Now, there's one one other thing that people would argue, which is to say that, hang on a second, you said the will was was dry stamped, authenticated on the thirtieth of December, fifteen forty six. That's right. And then you said that the will is also entered into a sort of ledger of documents that have been authenticated with the dry stamp, but that doesn't happen on the thirtieth of December, fifteen forty six, does it? it? Happens in January, fifteen forty seven. A suspiciously long gap, some would argue. Yes, yes, some would. So some people argue from the fact that it's in the January 1547 schedule that that indicates that, um, that it was signed later. But it's fishy. All, it, people say that's fishy. Why, why does that happen? So I think there are... I think there's a problem with this argument, though, because um, it certainly is the penultimate item in the schedule of January 1547, which is when Henry dies, so the penultimate item on these schedules at all. Um, and it's in this big flourishing letter, if that makes sense. There's a big flourish at the start of it, it says, Your Majesty so-and-so, and describes it. Um, is it a separate document? A separate document from the will, yes. There's a list of documents that's signed by dry stamp. Um, so it's not that somebody is quietly trying to put it into the schedule so that it can just pass by. Um, it, you know, it's there in very big letters declaring that His Majesty's will. So there's a question of what, what did they make, just sort of forget to put it in the December one? That seems unlikely for such an important constitutional document. And the, what it seems to me is that actually, probably because Henry VIII was present when the dry stamp was applied, it seemed unnecessary to put it in another document that he then endorses, endorses saying, yes, you did apply the dry stamp to this document. But that in January 1547, when it looks like the king is on his last legs, um, that he is going to die, they suddenly become terrified that the legality of the will will be undermined by it not also being on the schedule of documents. And therefore they put it in big letters so everyone can see it absolutely is legal, it is, the will is as it's supposed to be. If they'd been trying to attempt some sort of fishy business with this, then clearly it would have been silently entered at some point in relatively small writing not to be noticed or something like that. It doesn't, if you had tampered with the will, why would you advertise the fact so in such, in such a big way at the end of the will? It doesn't make sense Okay, to me. well, you've, con you've convinced me, um, but I, I'm very easily swayed. However... You've convinced me, and readers can, can delve into your book, The King is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of Henry VIII, to find out a little more. Now, we've established already that Henry VIII, his will, we think, was legitimate. He'd set up a, a, the personnel of the council. He wanted to be around his son, Edward VI, when his, his young son, nine, ten years old, succeeded to the crown after him. You mentioned earlier that the will also deals with the business of succession past Edward, contingency, uh, alternative scenarios, what if Edward VI, 
you know, this being the 16th century, doesn't make it into adulthood. How many scenarios does the will imagine? There are eight uh, succession scenarios. So first of all, you've got Edward, obviously, and you know if he lives long and prospers, then he can, and then his heirs. Failing that, if he dies, then it goes to any heirs by Catherine Parr, you know, Henry's heirs by Catherine Parr. Scenario three is any heirs by any future wife. Um, it's very optimistic, actually, isn't it? It, it really is. It really is. Um, uh, scenario four is Mary and her heirs, if she marries according to the advice of this privy council that Henry is also stating. Okay, so that's, that's quite significant, isn't it? Because, um, again, without wishing to roll too far forward, we have Edward, of real people who actually exist at this point, it, the succession is imagined as being Edward, then Mary, of Henry's living children. That's right. Uh, even Elizabeth. though, even though, even though Mary is still illegitimate right. technically under the, under law from 1536 onwards, she's Lady Mary. She's not Princess Mary. Both the marriage to Catherine of Aragon and the marriage to Anne Boleyn were declared as null and void, and so she is stated to be illegitimate, which is one of the arguments that Edward will use against making Mary his heir. But then, but then, uh, okay. So who's next after Mary? Elizabeth. Who is also illegitimate. Also illegitimate. So then next, after that... So is that, is that, that way round, sorry to harangue you on this, is that order of succession purely a matter of age? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because Mary's older than Elizabeth. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, and, and because they're both illegitimate, so one doesn't trump the other. Um, and then after that, we have the heirs of Henry VIII's niece, Lady Frances, um, so this is interesting because it means that he skipped over... Henry has two sisters, Margaret and Mary. Margaret has married um, into the Scottish line of kings and her descendants will eventually be uh, James VI who will take the throne after Elizabeth um, as James I. Um, but Henry doesn't acknowledge that line at all because they're Scottish-born. He is only interested in the descendants from his sister Mary, his younger sister. And he doesn't name... He Charles Brandon. Herself, That's right, yeah. yep. And um, her daughter, Frances, it's her heirs that he names in the will. He doesn't name Frances herself, which is quite interesting. She is skipped over. Um, I don't know why. I think it, that it seems to be probably that he, it, it's, it's notable that her husband is not recommended in, in the council, doesn't really have any power, maybe he was a buffoon, maybe Francis has, you know, it's not thought that, that she is a capable person of, uh, of, be, of ruling because of the influence of her husband. But her daughters, who are the Grey sisters, most famously, of course, Lady Jane Grey, um, uh, are, are named. Um, and then if that fails, the next scenario Henry imagines is the heirs of Lady Eleanor, who's Francis's sister. And then the last thing he says is, you know, sort of giving up to the next rightful heirs. You, know, so by... you, you guys figured this out. I mean, I've given you enough options. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, that seems remarkably thorough. On the other hand, uh, it does strike me as, as being the most extraordinarily kind of uh, controlling and egomaniacal um, way of thinking, which is not only to say, you know, my, you know, my kids, give it them in order, boy first, then go after that, work it out. But this, this, this desire to control the politics, the future, the, in some senses the constitution of England, I mean, this, this, this succession planning is, is stretching potentially decades, decades into the future. What's wrong with him? I think that's absolutely characteristic of Henry, though, that he wants to rule from the grave. You know, he wants to continue to have influence over, uh, over the rest of the centuries history um, over the dynasty and because he's been so powerful in his lifetime he utterly assumes that this is possible and what is fascinating is that you go from a position where he is somebody who's so powerful so ruthless his word is law practically um, to the point where he dies and suddenly everything changes all bets are off but he is absolutely trying to control it and what's then very interesting is of course and I am looking forward to here but when Edward dies, he tries to do the same thing. He tries to play the same game as his father had done and determine who will be uh, his successor. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite go through Parliament and time, but he does write his device for the succession, naming his heir, and he's trying to, to, to act like Henry does in his will. 
Yeah, it's considerably younger. I mean, this this speaks to I've, I've bored you with this before. But I think Henry VIII is the most childish man uh, in British history. Anyway, this is the. Well, hold on a second. Wait, 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 wait. This is no, no. This is the psychology of a child. This is the psychology of a spoiled child who wants to be in charge of absolutely everything all the time, and, and he's completely immature. It's the psychology of a ruler who doesn't feel who doesn't feel that the people around him um, are sufficiently. Um, capable of choosing the future, of determining the future. You don't even think that, do you? You just said think. it just to wind me Why up. Why would I try and wind you up <laughs> on, live on the BBC? Right. Um, okay, so I think, ha have we covered everything that's in Henry VIII's will? We've covered the, the composition of Edward's council, and we've covered Henry's plans for succession, and we know that Henry also made some sort of quasi-Catholic provision for his soul. Yeah, I guess there are two crucial things to say. One is um, that... The reason the will is so important is that Henry has had it has had it passed in an act of Parliament saying that he could determine his succession by his last will um, or by letters patent, which no monarch before has tried to do. And the second thing is that he says in it that his chief labour and study in this world has been to put him, meaning Edward, in the crown imperial in, in the realm. So, which I think means that the will acts as a kind of microcosm of Henry VIII's life. Everything he's tried to do in his life is to ensure the succession, to ensure the future of the dynasty, to put Edward on that throne. And his will, very similarly, is dedicated to that. Now, earlier on, I mentioned Henry V, and I mentioned Henry V um, because, like Henry VIII, he made a will, he, he laid out a plan for what should happen uh, regarding the governance of his, his, um, his child, son, after he died. Uh, in the case of Henry V, um, everyone basically ignored it. I mean, what, what Henry V set up was ignored and, and they got on with it the way they saw fit. What happened in the case of Henry VIII? He died on the 28th of January, 1547, two o'clock in the morning, play the story forward from there. So his death is kept a secret for several days. Um, Parliament continues to sit, whereas Parliament should normally immediately dissolve on the death of a king. Um, food continues to be brought to his chambers with trumpeters playing. Um, and meanwhile, behind the scenes, Hartford, Edward Seymour, um, and uh, Lord Lyle um, are... Uh, and with Paget's help, who's the king's chief secretary who'd drawn up the will, are going to make sure they have Edward, the person of Edward. They're going to find the boy. And they're keeping the information about Henry's death close to their chests so that they have Edward before they announce Henry is dead and this is the provision he made in his will. And we know they're, occupied, they're preoccupied by the matter of the will because in the letters that passed between Paget and Hartford at this time, um, Hartford has forgotten to leave the key with Paget to the box that the will is in. So there's this sort of middle of the night letters. They're dated at two a.m., four a.m. to send send back send the key back so I can get the will because this is the thing that gives them power that puts them on the council that means that they can um, establish themselves. Um, but what's really interesting is that very quickly after Henry's death, so whilst Henry has made provision for a council that will rule together. The council get together um, and take advantage of one other clause in his will, which has said that the council can do whatever they think is necessary and meet um, for the security um, and peace of the realm. And they decide that what is necessary is to go against the wishes of the will and to nominate, although they protest that they, they don't say they're doing that, they say they're going along with the will, and they nominate one person who will be the head of the council, the Lord Protector, who is Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford. So within days, um, uh, Henry's wishes for this council ruling as a body of equals have been overturned. Why do you think that, that happened? And, and by the way, when we say Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, we're talking about Edward VI's maternal uncle. We are, who, it, who also Jane becomes... Jane Seymour's brother. Jane Seymour's brother, who very soon becomes Duke of Somerset, because before Henry died, he drawn up a list of titles that he wanted um, to be bestowed on members of the nobility because, frankly, so many of them being killed off in his reign, there aren't that many of them around. And Henry um, has you know, drawn this up with Paget. And there's another clause in his will that says any gifts that he hasn't fulfilled or, or should be fulfilled by the council. And happily enough, the ones that give them titles and money are the ones that get enacted quickly. 
So, but, so but why do we think the council then, in complete defiance of Henry's will, uh, say, we're not going to rule as council, we're going to have um, effectively a protector who will become, obviously, will protect Somerset. Why? It's a good question. I mean, I think that they must genuinely think that this is the way to rule. I, it's a Don't difficult think, I mean, one because, because Hartford is a haughty... Um, not very attractive character, and but he must have had a charisma, um, and his sort of the, the rightness of his status. You know, he is the king's most senior uh, male relative at this time. He has what had great success on the battlefield. Uh, you know, he's not someone you can easily cross, he, and he looks like the right sort of person, even if he's not terribly nice. Must must have been the reason why they. You know, essentially give him power. Do you, do you think there's? A, I mean, it's possible, isn't it, that um, that for all the the kind of grand theorising on Henry's part about how he wants government ideally to be constituted, you are faced in a monarchical system uh, with the the basic fact that this is a system set up to be governed over by one person, isn't it? I mean. And, and no matter how much everyone would like it to, to be workable um, by committee, it very rarely is. And, and it, it, it would seem sensible, pragmatic politics to, to do things the way they did things, wouldn't it? I mean, I think it's an interesting point because one of the things that's been debated about the will is the extent to which asking for a council was an unusual clause. Um, actually, there has been research, my, some of my colleagues at the New College of Humanities have looked at kind of medieval wills or at Renaissance um, literature at the time, which is very much actually arguing in favour of council rule. Um, the latest sort of humanist um, statements on these sort of things are arguing that councils are the best way to rule. But maybe there is still this tension between these two things that actually... It is hard if you've had, um, if you've grown up your lifetime under Henry VIII to imagine a system without one man at the head of um, the, the realm. It is probably very difficult that they can only think of power of being vested in one monarch who has that personal power rather than it being something that is diffuse. And do, do you think um, that any of it is? related to uh, Somerset, let's call him, personal relationship with the young king. Because, I mean, I, if I, just to sort of cast a broad um, perspective going back to, you know, the 14th century, Edward VI becomes king at a very, very difficult age, probably the most difficult age. Because if you take the example of Henry VI, baby, nine months old, it's actually in the 1420s, they found it relatively straightforward to govern with a, a tiny baby as king, because that king has no will and, uh, and cannot provide any equity uh, in the sense of, of you know, independent judgment within the system. And so actually that's, that's one of the only situations in which conciliar government actually works. What you have in the case of Edward VI, or uh, let's say Richard II, when he became king at 10 years old, is uh, a king who is half-formed and is at the most dangerous age. He has parts of his will in, in the sense that he, he can think semi-independently but has not, obviously not experienced. So um, that's a long way of asking the question, but do you think, it's, do you think Somerset's um, advancement to that position was as a result of his uh, familial bond with the, the new king? I'm sure that is part of it. And one thing that's very interesting is that Catherine Parr, Henry's wife, when he dies, um, had previously had positions of importance in Henry's government, had been regent, just as Catherine of Aragon, um, her namesake, um, had been when Henry went to war in the 1540s, but has no position at all in the rule of her son after Henry's death. As if uh, Somerset is capitalising on his familial connection and not allowing that to be influenced by someone like a mother who might um, direct Edward towards other things. And it's true about his age, it is a very tender 
and vulnerable age, he does need to be kind of cosseted and made to do things. By the end of his reign, six years later, when he's in his teens, he clearly does have wishes about certain things. He is particularly, um, uh, as, as teenagers often are, um, filled with a kind of uh, piebald mentality about religion. He has a real sense of what is right and what is wrong. Um, he probably doesn't have that at nine years old, but, the, but he does need to be controlled. So I think there is something in making the most of the family connection and keeping him close that's important. Um, how long did Henry VIII's will shape English politics? Because we've just established that actually one of the first things that was done after Henry died was they kicked one of the most important points out of the window. How long did the... Did, was the rest of it just totally ignored? How long did it continue to shape um, English politics? Well, it comes back. It actually goes on to shape the succession for the rest of the 16th century. It, as it so happens, it plays out as Henry had dictated. But even um, Somerset's downfall, they appeal to the will. So, they, so a couple of years later, in 1549, when Somerset has been uh, throwing himself his weight around too much, really, and not acting on the advice of the other councillors. The other councillors look to the will to say, no, hold on a second, this is supposed to be council rule. Um, and then, of course, whilst Edward, using the example of the rule, tries to nominate Lady Jane Grey, when Mary stages the coup, as it were, takes back the throne from Lady Jane Grey, she mentions the will and says, I, ha I am in line to the throne because of my father's will. Elizabeth also mentions Henry's will early on in her reign. So there's a constant ref referral back to the will as being the sort of source of their legitimacy, even though they are illegitimate. And then actually, interestingly, Mary, Queen of Scots and her um, government try to use the fact that the will was signed by dry stamp to argue that it's illegitimate and therefore Mary, Queen of Scots should have the throne of England. So the will is this constant point of, of reference throughout the 16th century, and as it so happens, everything he plans for is carried through. By the time of Elizabeth's death, of course, um, it's all changed, and who, who is available to take the throne is a very different scenario, and Henry couldn't have foreseen quite that far ahead. But his plans have actually, by accident, as it turns out, have been carried through. Which I suppose is just as he would have wanted it. Exactly so. Although he'd been very disappointed in Elizabeth for not marrying and producing heirs, I think. Well, Suzanne Lipscomb, The King is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of Henry VIII, published by Henry Zeus, uh, and as well as being it's a wonderful, um, as I say, a narrative, a detective story, uh, a, a fantastic piece of scholarship with, I think, the first um, transcription of the will for some time. Since the, the last one was in the 18th century, so yeah. Okay, so this is actually a serious piece of uh, historical work which you will need on your bookshelves. Uh, as usual, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Dan. Um, thank you for your praise. It's very so, kind. Thank you very much. That was Susanna Lipscomb in conversation with Dan Jones. Susanna's book, The King is Dead, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Head of Zeus. And Susanna will also be delivering a free talk about Henry's will as part of the new College of the Humanities Spring Lecture Series. It's taking place at Senate House London on the 22nd of February. For more information and tickets, visit nchlondon.ac.uk and follow the link in the news tab. Dan Jones's most recent book is Realm Divided, A Year in the Life of Plantagenet England, which is available now. And you can hear him talking about that book on our podcast episode that was released on the 15th of October last year and is still available to download. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Henry VIII's erratic behaviour in the later years of his life was caused by brain damage resulting from a jousting injury, new work suggests. According to a team of US researchers, the infamous Tudor monarch may have suffered repeated traumatic brain injuries similar to those experienced by some American football players, the Daily Mail reports. This, researchers claim, would explain Henry's memory problems, explosive anger, headaches, insomnia, inability to control impulses and even impotence. Henry VIII is best remembered for executing two of his six wives and for breaking away from the Catholic Church in what became known as the Reformation. Dr Salardini, behavioural neurologist and co-director of the Yale Memory Clinic, said, It is intriguing to think that modern European history may have changed forever because of a blow to the head. Look out for our interview with Dr Salardini, plus Tudor historian Tracy Borman's counter-argument at historyextra.com. In other news, a new study carried out on prehistoric bones discovered at Stonehenge in 2008 has found that around half belonged to women. Researchers who examined the remains of some 200 adults said the findings showed a, quote, surprising degree of gender equality. The findings, which are reported in the magazine British Archaeology, contradict artistic portrayals of prehistoric man as in charge of the site, with, quote, barely a woman in sight. The findings are also important because burial at Stonehenge was likely to have been reserved for selected people of higher status. Meanwhile, a shortlist has been announced of historical figures who could appear on a new £10 note issued in Scotland. The shortlist includes science writer Mary Somerville, engineer Thomas Telford and physicist James Clark Maxwell, who all carried out pioneering work during the 19th century. More than 400 people nominated a Scottish figure that they felt had made a significant contribution in the fields of science and innovation. And earlier this week, the Royal Bank of Scotland announced the three-strong shortlist. The final decision will be made after a public vote ends. It is running until Sunday the 7th of February, on the bank's Facebook page. Before we go, I'd like to remind you that the February issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. In this month's edition, we have articles on Henry IV, the Battle of Verdun, Benjamin Franklin, Dad's Army, and a whole lot more. You can get hold of our February edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we're going to be paying a visit to Benjamin Franklin's London home to find out about the American founding father's sojourn in Britain. And if you can't wait that long for more history audio content, then you might like to try our History of Britain special podcast, which can be downloaded for free from our website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash Britain podcast to listen to that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. 
Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 